Hi, this is Coffee and Cold Cases with Alana Weiner and Siobhan Murphy. And today we're going to be talking about the Connecticut River Valley Killer. So this killer, this cold case, is kind of confusing. It's been unsolved it's, yeah, for a pretty long time now. A little bit of a jumbled mess. Yeah. Um, and we took a specific interest in this case because of the connection to us, uh, seeing as it happened in New Hampshire around this area. Um, so a quick introduction to this case. Um, our research really delved into the serial killer who's nicknamed, as we know, the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Uh, this cold case involves around seven known murders and then one uh, possible attempted murder. They were active between about 1978 to 1987 around the Claremont, New Hampshire and Connecticut River Valley area. So Shaban and I will be discussing the details of the victim profiles, the resemblances between the victims, um, the research of Lynn Marie Cardi, uh, who we will get to later, as well as some of the just interesting tidbits of the case um, that could either be a decent lead or kind of a real head scratcher. Um, in addition, we'll be looking at some of the cases that are suspected but not proven to be connected to the Connecticut River Valley killer as the suspected victims, and we'll go through that timeline for you. So we're going to jump right into the timeline. So I'm going to start off with just unknown victims. Um, so the people that the cops believe are connected to this killer. Um, some people list as many as 11 victims for this killer, but the cops' official stance is that there are seven in a possible um, attempted homicide. Um, so like Alana said, this started in 1978. So our first victim is a woman by the name of Kathy Milliken. And on October 24th, 1978, is the last time she's seen in New London, New Hampshire. And so the next day, she was found about 100 yards from where she was last seen. Um, and obviously they found her body. They did not find her as a living person. Um, next up is Mary Elizabeth Critchley. Um, she disappeared on July 25th, 1981 near Interstate 91 at the Massachusetts-Vermont border. And then she would not be found until August 9th, 1981, where her body would be found in Unity, New Hampshire. Then on May 30th, 1984, three years later, Bernice Cordemanche was last seen in Claremont, New Hampshire. After that, on July 22nd, 1984, a woman named Ellen Fried was last heard from um, on a call with her sister returning home from work in Claremont, New Hampshire. And one of the interesting things about this is during the call, Ellen mentions that she had seen an odd car driving back and forth. So she actually stayed on the line with her sister and to make sure her car started. And that was the last time she was seen or heard from. And then July 10th, 1985, the next year, a woman named Eva Morse is last seen hitchhiking near Claremont in Charleston, New Hampshire. And so then here comes the part where the authorities really started to get involved when they found these three women's bodies. So in September of 1985, they found Ellen Fried's body in Kellyville, New Hampshire. In 1986, they found Eva Morse's body in Unity, New Hampshire. 500 feet from where they found Mary Critchley's body. And then in April of 1986, they found Bernice Quartermanch's body. Later that month, 
April 15, 1986, Linda Moore was murdered in her home in Saxon River, Vermont, near on 91. Well, she was kind of an outlier, right? Yeah, we'll get to her later. Yeah. A bit of a strange one. It was a weird one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then on January 10th, 1987, Barbara Agnew's BMW was found abandoned with the door cracked open and blood on the steering wheel on I-91 in Hartford, Vermont. So I guess you can you can really see the pattern of I-91 is starting to emerge mm-hmm. here, which is also why he's sometimes called the I-91 killer. Um, then March 28th, 1987, Barbara Agnew's body is found in Heartland, Vermont. Um, so that's about two months later, a few months later. Um, and then the final confirmed, or thought to be confirmed, um, attack. attack is August 6th of 1988, when Jane Borowski, who is a pregnant woman, is attacked and left for dead and was in West Swansea, New Hampshire. Um, but she actually manages to drive herself to a nearby friend's house and actually manages to survive this attack. And after that, they do not believe that there are any more, any more victims. Yeah, at least none that we've confirmed. Yes. Um, so that was a big moment, though. The fact that she survived. Yeah. That was that kind was of a, a very, thing. yeah, a very not good thing, but a, a hint for the case. Yeah. It gave them something to go off of. And one of the things that, like, really impressed me about that was she was, like, seven months pregnant. Yeah. And she had they something, were, like... She was stabbed, what, like, 20 times at least? I think it's, like, 22. Yeah. yeah and so her and had, her baby survived. Yeah, she was stabbed around 27 times. Mm-hmm. And this woman meant to drag herself in her car yeah and drive herself to a friend's house yeah that's a strong woman which oh my goodness <laughs> yeah um and so actually from that attack she ended up with a severed jugular two yeah. collapsed lungs wow a kidney laceration and <laughs> severed tendons in her knees and thumb and she still managed to drag herself into a car she and drive. She survived. That's insane. I yeah. I love that for her. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So jumping into the possible victims. Um. These are ones that weren't really confirmed. Um. By authorities. Um. But ones that we can kind of connect to. Uh. This year, be killer. So the first one we have is in 1968 on June 11th. Joan Dunham. Uh, she was sexually assaulted and murdered in Charlestown, New Hampshire. Um, and we know the CRV killer did uh, sexually assault several of the victims. Um, and it was around the area, the same area that we've seen some of the other victims go missing or bodies have been found. And then on October 4th, 1982, a woman named Sylvia Grave was reported missing from her home in Plain- Plainfield, New Hampshire. And the next day, they actually found her body in the woods behind her home. Um, and then June 20th, 1986, this was several years later, um, but still in the time frame that we're looking at for the CRB killer. Um, Stephen Hill was last seen in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Um, and then about a month later, July 15th, his uh, body was found in Heartland, New Hampshire. Now, we've seen a bit of a pattern where the CRB killer generally seems to go for women. Um, but this kind of lined up a little too much. So yeah, he's the, a possibility. 
the murder area, like the the area they found his body in, and like the, yeah. the way he was murdered was similar to this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if he was a victim, it was likely another outlier. Wrong place, yeah. wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. Or you know, maybe he went. Obviously. Yeah, CRV killer went a step further this time. And so then on June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty eight. Um, this is about two months before the attack on Jane Borowski. Um, a female body, um, who still remains unidentified, um, they found dismembered arms and legs um, in Worth, Massachusetts, along Route 78. Um, they have not officially connected it to the CRV killer, and that woman does still remain unidentified. Um, but we thought it was a possible connection to the case. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so July 25th, about a month later, um, at a year later, <laughs> 1989, Carrie Moss was last seen at her home in New Boston, New Hampshire. Um, and then in two years later, two years later, I was like, that's a day before. <laughs> <laughs> two years later, um, her body was actually found in the woods in the same town of New Boston, New Hampshire. Um, Again, same general area, um, similar time frame, uh, similar mannerism of killing. So, um, you know, he had a pretty consistent, um, you know, motive, uh, way of unfortunately killing his victims. He stayed pretty on track. Pretty consistent. So that made it a little bit easier to kind of weed out who might be a possible victim. Um. And that was one, two, about five extra victims that we could find. Um, so then we have a full timeline of all those put together. Do we really want to? Do we want to go into detail on this, how they lined up, um, with the possible victims in there? Well, for the most part, um, it was within the timeline. The the ones are the two just I want to note in comparison. Yeah. So Joanne Dunham. Um, was first one of the um, possible victims. She was murdered July, June 11th, 1968, which was um, 10 years earlier than Kathy Milliken, which is the first like confirmed victim of this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Carrie Moss, who was um, disappeared in New Boston, New Hampshire, and then found two years later in the woods in the same town. Um, she was actually a year later, um, a year after Jane Borowski was attacked. So if law enforcement's kind of petering about what happened with this case is true, and the Jane Borowski attack stopped this, Carrie Moss may or may not be included in this list. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those definitely are slightly outside of our time frame of when we know he was active, um, but it's still definitely possible. Um, especially because they weren't found for years afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So to dive into the victims profile a little bit more, um, as we know, it ranged from around the known victims ranged from around 1978 to 1987 around Claremont, New Hampshire, and Connecticut River Valley area. Just to emphasize that. So our first victim, Kathy Milliken, was 27 years old when she was murdered. Um, this was on October 24th. 1978. She was found in the Chandler Brook wetland in New London, New Hampshire, and she was stabbed over 20 times. Um, there was no decomposition on this body. Was she fully skeletonized? No, she was found the day after. She died right, before, okay. So yeah, she so she was fully yes, not, <laughs> not even active decomp yet, um, which was a very quick find. 
Um, so we'll dive into the forensic anthropology evidence later, but this would, you know, hopefully be kind of obvious to see yeah. what had happened um, and, you know, could have could have done a lot with that. Yeah, and the, the causes of death for these women is just something to keep in mind mm-hmm. for when we talk about um, kind of the forensic anthropology side of that in a minute. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on to Mary Elizabeth Critchley. She was 37, and she went missing while she was hitchhiking on the Massachusetts Turnpike near Exit 13 on July 25th, 1981. Her body was then discovered on August 9th in Unity, New Hampshire, on Unity State Road. Um, her body was severely decomposing um, when they found her. So her cause of death is unknown, but is suspected homicide, which is why she's on this list. Mm-hmm. All right, so third we have Bernice Cordemash. Now, she was only 17, and she was last seen alive in Claremont, New Hampshire on May 30th, 1984. Um, her remains were located nearly two years later off of uh cat hole hill road in newport um and again she had been stabbed many times um her remains were found april 9th 1986 two years later um now she another thing to keep in mind with these victims was known to be a nurse's aide um a pattern we saw forming with the victims was that a lot of them were nurses nurses aides or somehow involved in the nursing and medical system and we'll talk about that a little bit more later yeah too. it was kind of a prevalent pattern yeah um, and was, was, like, half of the yeah. um he definitely had more involvement with that which we will dive into in a few minutes um and so bernice cornemage remains were skeletonized and a forensic exam showed knife wounds to the neck and a head injury Next up, we have Ellen Freed, or Pride, depends how you want to pronounce it. Um, but she's 26, and this was the woman who was speaking to her sister on a payphone in Claremont, New Hampshire, on July 22nd, 1984. So she was on the phone with her sister coming home from work. She was also a nurse. And as she was on the phone with her sister, she said that she saw a suspicious car driving back and forth. And so she went and she started her car and talked to her sister a few minutes more um, before hanging up. And that was the last time she was seen or heard from. Um, she was sexually assaulted by her killer, um, but her cause of death is undetermined and once again suspected of homicide. And her body was discovered on September 19, 1985, next to the Sugar River in Kellyville, New Hampshire. And her remains were decomposing when they were found. Um, Alright, so the next victim we have is Eva Morse. She was 27. She was last seen alive on July 10th, 1985. Now, Eva Morse was hitchhiking on Route 12 in North Charleston, New Hampshire, um, and her remains were discovered in April 1986, uh, about a year later, in West Unity, New Hampshire. Again, she had also been stabbed. Um, She was a single mother as well. She wasn't yes. part of a nursing system, but yeah, she was a single mother, which is unfortunate. Um, I don't know what happened to her kid, but um, her body was found decomposing as well. Um, then we have Linda Moore, who was 36, and this was a woman who was killed inside her own home in Westminster, Vermont, on April 15th, 1986. And she was killed somewhere between 2 and 3 p.m., and she was stabbed 25 times. So one of the really big things with um, Linda Moore as a victim is she's a big tactic change for this killer and an outlier 
in the system. She was killed in her home in a frenzy. There was no decomposition. I believe her husband was the one who found her. Yeah. Um, yeah, he came home from work. Returning from work later that day. Mm-hmm. So there was no body dump. There was nothing yeah. like that. So that was... Very out of pattern. <laughs> yeah, something that we definitely wanted to emphasize. Just to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a weird one. It was. Um, and I think, honestly, that probably, you know, helped the case proceed a little yeah. bit. Um, that was very out of out of character for him. Yeah, they also um they got a witness description yeah. of a man with um, glasses, brown glasses. glasses. Yep. Um, that also ended up helping. Um, yeah. Especially when we get to Jane Borowski in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So the next victim was Barbara Agnew, who we talked about earlier. She was thirty six. Um, and she went missing from a rest stop on I ninety one near White River Junction, and this was on January 10th, 1987. Her body was discovered on March 28th, um, frozen under an apple tree. Um, so she'd been there a while, um, enough for, you know, a season change to be frozen over. Um, she was also stabbed. Um, she was a nurse, and we know that she was missing for two months in Hartford, Vermont, before she was found dead near Advent Hill Road. Um, and this was, again... Uh, March 28th, 1987 was when she was found. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of unsure um, on her as well. There was slight decomp, um, but with the freezing over of the ground um, and, you know, the less prevalent techniques of forensic anthropology back then, um, they didn't have as much knowledge of what to do with her body. Yeah, it was kind of unclear um, how much information they could get from her. Yeah. Um, because, like, we had mentioned that she was, like, basically frozen in this tree. Which um, would preserve yes, her remains to a so point. We assume that there was something that they could get out of that. Um, yeah. And but they didn't make it, um, you know, uh, it, we couldn't find anything on it. They didn't make it public. Yeah. Um, so the last one we're going to talk about is Jane Borowski. And she was the 22-year-old pregnant woman who actually ended up surviving this attack. Um, so Jane was in West Swansea, New Hampshire at around 12.30 in the afternoon on August 6, 1988. It was in the morning? Yes. Damn. Yeah. My bad, 12.30. I think, right? Was I was during... It might have been. Anyways. Anyway, it was 12.30. <laughs> 12.30. <laughs> um, right near four in the morning. Um, and so she stopped near Winchester, New Hampshire, um, and was in a parking lot, and a man driving a Jeep Wagoneer approached her vehicle. Um, I believe he originally opened with asking if the payphone was working, or, um, and so she was like, oh yes, like it is. Um, and so after she responded to him. He reached in and he pulled her out of the car through the window, proceeded to stab her 27 times. During this, he was screaming at her and claiming that she had hurt his girlfriend and that she was from, I think it was Connecticut or something. Yeah. And he was like, you have Connecticut plates. And she was like, no, I don't. I have New Hampshire plates. Mm-hmm. Like, look at my plates. Um, and so she again survived this attack. Um, she was seven months pregnant. Uh, her child did end up having some medical issues later on, um, which was unfortunate, but 
she did manage to survive um, by driving herself to a nearby friend's house. And one of the really creepy things that I noted about this was when she like drove herself to her friend's house, yeah. she said that she thought she saw the Jeep Wagoneer, like with of the man who attacked her, like following her to mm-hmm. her friend's house and like driving by really slowly. Yeah. Which like was so very creepy and like, kind you're, of you're bleeding out on the lawn of your friend's yeah. home. Kind of weird too that he yeah. would risk the witness of that because yeah, like, he seems to want to stick quite hidden yeah because he's, he's not a he's not a vanity killer yeah left her for dead and then when she got in and drove away he like followed her yeah which weird also i don't know if he had been there to follow her you would think he would have finished the job the fact that yeah. she was able to crawl away and survive I don't know. the whole thing is just it's really a little cool. weird yeah um that's definitely a an iffy part of the case um that has caused a lot of questions um and to clarify this was at 12 30 p.m it was late evening um made sure of that <laughs> um all right so we have actually before we get to that yes. i just want to mention one more thing um so Jane actually helped with a composite sketch of her attacker. Yeah. Um, and her attacker also had the um, round glasses. Like big rimmed mm-hmm. glasses. Um, he also had a wood paneled um, Jeep Wagoneer, mm-hmm. um, so like a station wagon. Um, and so, uh, I, if I remember correctly, she remembered a few um, of his plate numbers. Yeah, um, but when they had like searched the they, partial yep. plate, they ended up coming up with like 132 or something cars. It was so it just really wasn't feasible. 350 so, possible matches. Yeah. So yeah, even worse. They did do a search of the vehicle, um, um, which we'll get to uh, later as well. But um, yeah, they came up with 350 possible matches. So this did not help that much, unfortunately. Um. All right. So media coverage of this case um there was not a lot publicized it was very hard to dig and find some of this stuff um what we did find was a couple bullet points um tampa bay times had an article um it was it was about lynn marie cardi yes so lynn marie cardi who we will discuss in depth um in a couple minutes was a private sleuth um, and she had a big interest in this case and a big connection um, to one of the suspect's sons as well. She took an interest in this case in high depth. Um, so June 13, 2006, um, this article was talking about how Lynn Marie Cardi heard about Michael Nicolau's murder-suicide. Um, and she connected the dots with p- other pieces of this case that she was hearing as she was, you know, researching really deep into it um and she decided to bring what she found to detective steve rowland who was part of the cold case unit and bring this to law enforcement yeah this was the cold case unit yeah i'm sure too specifically mm-hmm. um and so they were going to compare some of the fingerprints from jane Barossi's car now they did this and i don't think i think it came up inconclusive yeah, they also had some dna mm-hmm. um, from the jane Barossi attack that they compared with uh one of the three main suspects which also came back inconclusive, unfortunately. Yeah. They had a lot of potential for the DNA matches, but, yeah. you know, it was back in the 80s um, and the early 2000s, and there was a lot less, you know, technology and knowledge yeah. about 
this than there is now. Technology has advanced quite yeah. a lot since then, which especially in this field, good. it's yeah. great. Um, you know, I will talk about how that could be used, maybe, <clears throat> you know, to go back and delve into this case again. Yeah, we'll discuss that a little bit later on. Um, so this case had three main suspects um, that were really looked into. Uh, we have Michael Nicolau, we have Delbert Tallman, and we have Gary Westover. I'm going to go through each of these men um, and kind of just give you the rundown of why they were suspected um, and what came of each of them. So first, we have Delbert Tallman. Um, so he confessed to the crime of Heidi Martin, who was one of the um, suspected victims, I believe. Um she was, I don't know that we put her in the timeline. She was another um, weird one. Um, so Delbert Tallman was actually sentenced for this crime. He confessed. Um, and then he actually recanted and then was acquitted. So, um, and he was released from prison on yeah. October 6, 2010. So, um, on May 20th, 1984, 16-year-old Heidi Martin went for a jog in Heartland, Vermont, on Martinsville Road. Um, and then the next day, her body was found in a swampy area behind the elementary school. She had been sexually assaulted, raped, and stabbed to death. Um, so, because Tallman confessed to this, um, and it was in the area and matched kind of the motive of the CRV killer, he was a main suspect. Um, Delbert Tallman was known to be on the autism spectrum, um, but they couldn't really get much out of him um, besides the confession. Um, after he recanted, they couldn't do much. He was released from prison on October 6th, 6th 2010. And then one of our next big suspects was a man named Gary Westover. So, in October of 1997, when he was 46 years old, he was paraplegic and on his deathbed, and he confessed to his uncle, who was at the time a retired police officer, um, for the, was it the murder of Heidi Martin that he confessed to? I think he just confessed as a whole. He He was one of the prime suspects, and he confessed to several of them. Yeah. Well, he confessed to, um killing um one of the one of the victims um but he said that him and three of his buddies were um it was agnew i think yeah i think it was was agnew Agnew. um so barbara agnew specifically Mm -hmm. um and so him he said he went out with three of his buddies for a night of kind of like joy riding you know night on the town guys night whatever um, and they ended up picking up and murdering Barbara Agnew, um, and so he confessed this on his deathbed and died in March of 1998, and so he gave his uncle the names of three of his buddies, yeah. including Michael, Michael Nicolau, Nicolau, which was extremely interesting, <laughs> because he is our third suspect, suspect. yes. In my opinion, the prime suspect. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of evidence against Michael Nicolau. Um, he was a guy. 
Um, so he was a scumbag even if he didn't become a city cop. Yeah, he was. He had a lot going for um going on. So he was actually born under the name of Edward Stafford. Um, so a little bit of background. He did two tours of duty as a gunship helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Um, and he was known, um, besides being a good pilot, to enjoy the killing aspect of it. Um, he he took joy in it. Um, one of the things that he was like infamous for in his unit um, was taking like a knife and going out on foot and saying he was going to hunt humans. Yeah, which disgusting. Terrifying. <laughs> um, and again, so a composite was um, made up, which was revealing a young man between twenty to twenty-five with round face and glasses. This did resemble um, Michael Nicolau as well. So we know that the area. Um, that he was in, in the area that these killings happened, had a large hospital. Um, one of the things that I noted was that because of his time, um, serving, he spent a lot more time in hospitals than most people because he was seeking treatment for PTSD. Um, this would give him a lot of access and a lot of connection, you know, to nurses. Um, which goes back to what we were saying about a lot of the victims, is that... He may have had it out for nurses. Um, in addition, he had the access, he had the knowledge, you know, maybe he didn't like how they were treating him before the PTSD. Um, who knows? One of the um, things I also just wanted to briefly mention is that when he was in the, um, when he was serving in mm-hmm. Vietnam, um, he was actually um, accused with a few of his friends of strafing. And so that is basically, um, essentially he was shooting at innocent civilians yeah. from his helicopter Great. um they ended up him and his friends ended up being acquitted because there wasn't enough evidence um but later that month he was um, discharged the hospital and that, or discharged states and that was kind of really where his trouble started again yeah um in addition one of his ex-wives was actually a nurse uh, and i'll get back to it in a minute um michael nicola was also he had a lot of wacky jobs um he got in a lot of trouble he got <laughs> You know, he didn't have a great life. He owned a porn shop at once. He yeah. was dealing, like, at the liquor store. Yeah, he was dealing drugs. Um, dealing drugs. Oh, and, yeah. Um, uh, and then he became a civilian informant. Yeah. Because of that. Um, yeah, the drugs definitely, um, He got so. acquitted for the porn. No, um, he did get acquitted, but he got, um, convicted of selling lewd materials mm-hmm. in his porn shop, um, the first time, and then he and his business partner got caught a second time a few months later and that time they were acquitted yeah um all right so uh yeah he was a civilian informant for cops because of his in in the drug world um so going back one of his ex-wives was also a nurse i also do want to mention his second wife michelle um because that's kind of where lynn marie party comes in true um so his second wife was a woman named michelle um, she, they lived, I believe, in the Connecticut area with their family, mm-hmm. um, but her family lived up in Vermont, so they spent a lot of time traveling between the two, um, and so one day, um, him, his wife and his kids, um, actually ended up leaving him and going to stay with, uh, her family because, um, she was scared of him, he was abusive, um, all the reasons that a wife takes kids and leaves her husband. Yep. Um, and so he actually ended up badgering her family until she finally, like, relented and went back to him. Um, but he also ended up 
um, actually running away with his kids. So Michelle's mom, um, Michelle told her mom that she was going to leave him again. And like a month later, when her mom hadn't heard from her, she showed up to their apartment. Um, there was food in the fridge. It was old. It was spoiled. There was unopened Christmas presents because this was in uh, December, February, uh, December, January, rather. Um, and like a lot of like everyday like items that like her daughter would use she found in the apartment um kind of completely left and so um marie lynn party was actually um a neighbor to michelle's family mm. and so that was the reason they initially had asked for her to look into michael nicolau because she actually said to her family if i ever go missing like he it was him and, like yeah and the kids yeah um which is a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> um, my husband killed me and took the kids. Not great. Not a great no, Not great. But at least we know it was him. Yes. Um, which, unfortunately, we didn't get so lucky in this case. Um, and we'll kind of talk about um, what Lynn Marie Party found mm-hmm. uh, in regards to She Michelle was very helpful in the case. We about her. She actually she um, did yeah. a lot of work. She did a lot of work. Awesome. Um, Alright, so, uh, fast forward to his third wife. Ugh. <laughs> um so he actually was known he killed his third wife um and he injured his daughter this was in a murder suicide um so he killed himself after the same attack now the daughter survived with injuries um from the murder suicide but unfortunately on the way to the hospital later she did die from injuries so um because of this murder suicide you know he's dead we couldn't yeah. Bring him in for questioning. Um, can't get a confession out of dead. Can't get a confession. Um, you know, so as much as he seemed to be the prime suspect, um, we had a lot less to go off of yeah, with less of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Um, so like he that was co- in the area at mm-hmm. the time, he had the car, he had the same um, look, which we'll also talk about a little bit later when we talk about um, the profile of the CRV killer. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so law enforcement's involvement in this case. Uh, like we said, there was not a lot of information. Um, I think they kept it very quiet. They didn't have much other than circumstantial evidence. Um, made it very difficult. So because of this, um, and because they were struggling with this case, the local authorities actually called in a criminal psychologist by the name of John Philpin. Um, and he developed a criminal profile the suspect. Uh, So in 1991, the Idaho State Police recognized a composite, the one that was uh, made previously, um, as someone who had been in their uh, prison previously. So they called the tip line, um, but we are unsure if anything came of this. There was no further information. Yeah, it kind of just like, they were like, oh yeah, this tip came We recognize him. Good luck. We're going to look into it, and then we just kind of never really saw anything about it again. Mm -hmm. I assume it either came up with some information very specific to the case that they didn't want to share publicly. Yeah. Or they didn't get anything from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if he was dead as well, can't do a ton from that besides identify him as the probable um, perpetrator. Um, and then Lynn Marie Cardi again. Um, she had a huge involvement with this case and she brought her findings to Detective Steve Rowland of the Cold Case Unit. 
um, and we want to discuss a little bit about her now. Um, so like we said before, she was neighbors with Michelle's mother, um, which is why she initially started looking into this case. Um, so she did end up getting into contact with uh, Michael Nicolau when he was still alive. She had called him looking for Michelle, um, and at first he had denied like knowing her. He was like, oh, I don't know that woman. Um, but then she was like, no, you do. Like, I know you do. Um, so he was kind of like, oh, yeah. And he said that she ran off with some man, called her a lot of derogatory terms, called her a slut, said she was using drugs, basically talked a lot of garbage about her. Um, and so Lynn Marie Cardi was like, well, where are your kids? Because they had two kids together. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, the kids are with me. They're fine. And so um, that was kind of the end of it. He was like, don't talk to me again. She tried to call back the next day. His number was disconnected. So she didn't really have a lot to go on. Um, She looked for years for Michelle's body, trying to see if there were any unidentified persons that matched the description or the area in which she was thought to have maybe disappeared in. Yeah. Uh, As of the last we know, her body has still not been found. Yeah. Um, so we're hoping that she's maybe at their life somewhere, but maybe. chances but probably are low. great. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, she did do, she did a lot of the research into him. She contacted him while he was alive. Um, but this whole time she was compiling evidence against him. Um, and then later on, fast forward a few, uh, many years, um, Michael Nicolau's son, she had a big connection. She got in contact with his son, Nick Nicolau, um, and kind of formed a very comforting relationship yeah. with him. Um, Nick At Nicolau first, had a lot of difficulties accepting his father. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, it was it was really rough for him. Mm-hmm. He honestly really hated her for a while. Like, yeah. I think he said the words, I hate you to her. Yeah, no, he her. hated her. Um, because when she first started um, like talking to him about his father's was... Yeah. After his she was convicting his father had died on the murder mm-hmm. suicide, um, and he was only eighteen at the time too, so he was still a kid. Yeah, like I can't imagine being eighteen and being like, "Oh yeah, your father is dead." Is and killed your mother. Last yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So this entire thing started when she actually heard about, um, or it sort of restarted when she heard about um the murder suicide of Michael Nicolau and his wife and his stepdaughter. And so she saw it in the news because obviously this man murdering his wife and his stepdaughter, big news. Um, So she saw his name in the news and was like, I know him. And so she began looking around into his past and um, discovered all of these uh, killings in the Connecticut River Valley area, um, an area where he was known to be for a good portion of his, of like the time that the murders were occurring. So she starts adding all of this up. Um, and this is where the 2006 article comes in, um, because that is when she brought all of this evidence about Michael Nicolau to um, Detective Rowland in the cold case unit. Um, and so one of the things that actually did end up happening later is so Nick Nicolau, which is Michael's son, um, he went through a really rough couple of years. Um, he was using drugs. He couldn't hold down a job. 
who's homeless for a portion of time. Really, really low point in his life for him. Um, and so he actually remembered a conversation with Lemarie Party where she encouraged him to reach out to her if he needed anything. And so he actually ended up calling her um, after two years and they really started reconnecting and um, she was really like a mother figure to him, um, which is something that he really didn't have for most of his life yeah. um, because the Nicolau family was very on the move. They lived mm -hmm. in their car a lot. Um, they were homeless for a period of time. It was a tough, tough time. I'm sure it couldn't have been an easy childhood. Yeah. Um, and so... Especially um, abuse. Yeah. So, so now um, he actually says... They're still in contact. Yeah. And he actually says that he loves her. Mm -hmm. um, like, not in you know, like a romantic way, but sort of like a, you pulled me out of this dark place. Yeah. Kind of same. She did a lot for him. my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so she, she had a yeah. huge involvement with this case um, from kind of, you know, current start to current to finish um, still today. Yeah. And she was emailing um, Detective Roland like once a day for yeah, weeks. A lot. Um, she was pushing for, for it. She was the reason. Evidence, yeah. fingerprint evidence. Mm -hmm. She was like, we have all this evidence. What's mm -hmm. happening? What are we doing? Yeah. She really wanted to make yeah. sure that this right. case was not forgotten. I would completely credit her with how far this investigation did go. Absolutely. Um, even though it was not solved, you know, she pushed for it. She pushed for it every day. Um, she took a very personal interest in this one. Um, so another um, thing the law enforcement decided to do because they were so stuck um, was actually call in a man by the name of John Philpin. Now, John Philpin... Um, was I think a criminal psychologist I believe so, yes. um, and they brought him in to build a criminal profile um, you know we did have the composite we have the plates we have a lot um, but they were having trouble with where to go with this yeah. so um, what John Philpin figured out from his personal profile yeah, of so this, this is, this is what we're going his profile, yeah. the serial killer. Mm -hmm. um, so he noted that they were calculated attacks with attention to detail and routine, um, which we see in the patterns. We see in the same causes of death, the stabbings, the nurse motif. Um, and this routine would suggest that the killer is a collector um, and very organized for the most part. But despite this organization of the attacks, um, there was several outbursts of rage, um, which you can see from the amount of times he was stabbing his victim. Um, Jane 27 yeah. stab wounds. That's anger. Um, you know, he did not need that many stabs, but he decided to do it. Although apparently he could finish the job with her. Yeah. Um, so the suspect also, his most significant relationship um, was with his mother. Um, which... I didn't specify whether by significant it was a good or a bad. I would assume good. However, he's attacking mm. mainly women. I think mostly, like, so what that means, kind of, I, in my opinion, is that, like, his, he was very attached to his mother. Okay. So, like, for most people, that would probably be seen as, like, a good thing. Like, oh, you yeah. know, like, I love my mom. But, but in this case. more of, like, an obsession. Yeah. Like, really, like, borderline. Obsession. Just, yeah. Shitty. Like it was just um 
it's possible that his mother had some sort of hand in abuse, mm -hmm. um, either physically or sexually when he was younger. It was sort of unclear. Yeah, it was not specific. Um, however, his father was the one that we know was abusive and absent. Um, likely both. Likely abusive yeah. and then left. Um, which is kind of confusing to me. One of my biggest questions in this case was, like, why, if his father was the one that was more abusive and absent, the obsession led to him murdering women yeah. instead of having an anger towards men. One of the things that I thought about with that, because I, I agreed with you initially, I was kind of like, that's weird. Um, but it's also possible that this killer could resent his mother for the fact that yeah. his father was abusive and then she absent. did nothing, probably. Um, yeah. So kind of like, oh, like this is how we yeah. deserve to be treated, or it's her fault that he's gone and I'm stuck with her kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so, John Philbin also um, suggested that his violence could be recreating an early experience, like we talked about, if yes. his mother had some involvement, um, physical, physical emotional, sexual abuse, um, resentment abuse. towards yeah. being a bystander, whatever it may be. Um, he also had a history of voyeurism, um, and which would explain maybe he liked stabbing them multiple times so he could watch um as dark as it as it is um he was very reliant on his car spent a lot of hours on the road we know this pretty pretty clearly because of the uh spread out locations of the victims especially because a lot of them were on i-91 too yeah through multiple states like mass vermont New Hampshire, very easy um, yeah. on like yeah. sort of transportation triangular area mm -hmm. um and then driving was a form of self-hypnosis um which maybe we can all relate to you know it's possible i love, I love driving so <laughs> Especially during COVID, yep yep you know thing. yeah it's a thing it I'm was so a thing back of, then too yeah so you know um he it makes sense that he was on this road and had access and took an interest and so i also just wanted to compare that um because that was the profile that john Fulton created um for the serial killer and i kind of just wanted to compare that against the information we have about michael michael Nicola. yeah um so he had military training he was in the military for i believe two years uh he had a collection of war mementos so collector um in 1997 a neighborhood kid pushed Nikolai's son, and um, he set the neighbor's car on fire. So, outburst of anger. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of his family disowned him, but he always returned to his mother. Mm -hmm. Significant relationship. Yep. Sex shop, voyeurism. Yes. He had a very big interest in all of that um, scandalous yeah. stuff. Um, his father, uh, his birth father, was a convicted sexual offender. And his stepfather was who he was. So his birth father left when he was three, and then he was raised with his stepfather. And um, he said that his stepfather was possibly physically abusive. Um, and he also claimed that um, his mother had sexually assaulted him as a child, which she is adamant about didn't happen. As we said, Nikolai was now dead, so there's really no way to confirm that. Mm -hmm. um, so he was also um, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and he had flashbacks. Um, he would wake his kids up in the middle of the night and take them on cross-country trips. Um, they were homeless for a while and slept in their car, so big reliance on the car. He was really mobile. 
and apparently, um, according to one of his wives, Eileen, he chanted a lewd mantra while driving. She would later tell her sister. So a lot of creepy, um, first of all, yeah, gross. Um, and this man was disgusting, even if he didn't commit these murders. But a lot about him does line up with this profile. Yeah, um, definitely. Which obviously could be just a coincidence. But yeah, but it's, it's why he was considered the main suspect. Yeah, good to good to take a note of. Yeah. Um, Alright, so, the circumstances of this case. We went over all the victims. We went over the possible, the known victims, um, the causes of death. So, a quick summary of this. The first two bodies, we know, were found a month apart, and they were actually found only a thousand feet from each other. Um, now, this is a little too close to be coincidence. It's... Seems like it was a dumping ground. Um, yeah, we know they were dumped stabbed. other places. I believe they both had their throats slit as well. Yeah, they were um, both stabbed. Absolutely. So um, obviously, dumping ground right next to each other. Yeah. Same manner of death. So mm-hmm. this is when they kind of started to realize that they had a serial killer on their hands. Yeah. And they ended up looking back and finding, I believe, two bodies previously because mm-hmm. these two bodies were even Critchley. So I believe there was yeah. one and or two bodies they found before that. They were like, oh, like, we think that this is linked to them. Yeah. Um, now, the cause of death was difficult to determine um, due to the decomposition levels. Um, especially back then, you know, there was a lot less knowledge on this um, and how to kind of gather the information yeah. based on um, how the remains, you know, appeared and were forming. Um, so Eva and Critchley, as we said, were found 500 feet from each other. Yeah, um, very, very close. Um, and as Siobhan said, they were not only all stabbed in similar geographical areas, they all had their throats slit, and they were all close to I-91, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Um, so this was definitely very clear, a pattern yeah, that there was, there was a problem. Sort of there was people, um... Some people, there was something's going on. Someone was doing things that they were not supposed to, and they had a problem on their hands. So, after all this information, um, we see we still have a problem in this case with the forensic anthropology aspect of it. So, they did a lot, and they did what they could for the time. Um, they had DNA and fingerprints on file. Um, they did a forensic examination of Bernice Cordemanche found knife wounds in the neck and the head injury. Um, so, you know, they did, they did something. However, they tried. A lot of this was inconclusive, you know. Um, they had, they had information, but then they didn't take this information further. So, this was also in the late 1900s. This was late 1900s. So, um, the forensic techniques that we use now yeah. are also mostly unheard of for this time. Yeah, it was a so, lot less prevalent. Yeah. So I think as much as they did it, they need to now go back and take this to a further extent. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot. That there's a lot we, we could, could do, do now. now. Uh, especially yeah. in regards to specifically with forensics. Yeah. Um, so a couple things they could have done um, or could do now is... Uh, re-examine several of the bodies and all of the evidence from that case. Yeah, um, especially because with anthropology, like, yeah. even the last, like, ten years, so it's much It's been changed. so much. Um, so, like, our 
her advisor, um, Dr. Amy Michael. <laughs> Love you. Um, so she started, um, when she started her like forensic academic career, mm-hmm. um, to compare it to where we are now, like, she yeah. tells us all the time about how much has changed. Yeah, and, like, it's exponential. Mm-hmm. So especially compared to like the late 1900s when these bodies were being There's found, definitely more information. There's so get. much more that we would know now. Yeah, things that we might have had theories back then that have since been debunked. Yep, and we definitely have all sorts of new methods and techniques mm-hmm. that we can use now that yeah. would have been super helpful to them yep. back then. Especially, you know, the different stages of decomposition, yeah, the way the body was preserved from being frozen, um, taphonomic changes. You know, there's tons of stuff that would have been so helpful. We could really go on for hours. Yeah. So. Um, there's new ways to get DNA, um, and as we said, a lot of it was debunked, um, which would save a lot of time, Mm. um, and be a lot more accurate. So DNA could be run again, see if we can get a more conclusive, um, answer, um, and, you know, it definitely could have helped the potential outcome of this case. Five out of the seven victims were either found skeletonized or decomposing, um, and, you know, the skeletonized part of it, anthropology would be extremely helpful. The decomposing part of it, we know a lot more about the stages of decom that would be helpful. Um, and, like, one of the things is they really only, I could only find mention of a forensic examination on one, one of body. Yeah. One body. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of resources, a lot of funds. Yeah. You know, but. It should have been done on more than one body but once they found a pattern. Seven, they yeah. only did forensic examination one. on one of them. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's a, you know, they could have been a little, they could have done more. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have the funds, but they could have done more than that. Um, I think, so, like, looking back, everyone could always do more, like, especially I, absolutely. in cases like these. Yeah. Um, so, like, we get a little bit where they're coming from, but mm-hmm. also, obviously, we want these women to have justice for what was done to them. Yeah. And um, just like, make sure it doesn't happen again mm-hmm. or it isn't happening somewhere else. Yeah. So. Um, now, several of the things that we did learn in class this semester that we did see um, pop up in this case, besides the forensic anthropology evidence of it um, that could have been examined further, um, we do have the sharp force trauma of the stabbing pattern. Um, we could tell probably a decent amount from those. Um, you know, we know that they were sharp force. Um, they look very different um, yeah. than blunt force, blast, uh, any of that. It was quite obvious they were stabbing. Yeah, stab wounds mm-hmm. are significantly yeah. different than blunt force trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, we could have built a more, I'm not sure if they did, I feel like they should have or would have realized, um, but the biological profile of the victims, they were all known to be women. It was quite obvious they didn't even have to do a huge, you know, anthropological, uh, anthropological examination um, to tell of that. Um, they were all women. They were all in the age range. Um, you know, they could have solidified an age range. Um, the age range was quite large, um, but they should have tried to do that for more of them. Yeah, they definitely had more they could have worked on. The third thing um, was the taphonomic changes, which we did touch on earlier. Yeah. The state of the remains did make it difficult to determine the cause of death back then, but I think now, with all that we know oh, yeah, about 
how the environmental changes after death affect the body, whether it was peri or post-mortem, or even antemortem, you know, yeah, um, I would, that would be extremely helpful. I, I definitely think if we were to re-examine the bodies, we'd see a lot. Um, even if um, these returns were to happen like today, yeah. and we were to find the decomposing bodies, I think we could still learn a lot more than we could back then. I agree. Um, but definitely now, if we were to re-examine them. Yeah, um, well, you could tell a lot skeletonized mm-hmm. state now especially with um you know was it agnew the one that was frozen i wish i remembered her name off the top of my head yep it was agnew it was barbara agnew yeah. um you know the the things we know about how the weather affects the bodies how time affects the bodies yeah. if there was scavenging you know soil staining there's so many things we could tell mm-hmm. um that the soil the ones that were found a thousand feet from each other 500 feet from each other um they would have very similar taphonomic changes most likely um, because they were found in the same area. And if they didn't, that could also be a sign yeah. that one was mm-hmm. moved from a, exactly. a different location beforehand. Exactly. So, I think this case would be worth investing some funds into yeah, and absolutely. going back and trying to solve it. Um, or at least get more out of it, more conclusive evidence out of it. Um, One of the good things I think about this case is that of the victims that they believe is to be confirmed of the CRV killer, they're all identified. Yeah. Um, that is extremely there, good. That one dismembered body that I mentioned yeah. as one of the possible victims. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely that would definitely be a, uh, good to look into. Yeah. Um, but I'm one of the things I'm most happy about, I mean, obviously I'm not happy about any of these women. Obviously. But um, I'm at least glad that they're identified. They're identified. Yeah. Their families don't happen to them, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's not much prosecution to be done because the main suspect is yes. dead. One of the other suspects is dead. Um, and the third one, we couldn't really tell. Yeah. It was unclear if he was dead. I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Either way, he was acquitted. Um, and even if he did one or two of the crimes, yeah. or if he so was involved Delbert in Delbert any Delbert way. Delbert. Yeah, Delbert Thomas. Um, you know, even if he was involved and acquitted, he seems a lot... He was probably involved with something. Yeah. But if you, you know, he was a lot less likely to be the suspect of these murders um so it's kind of almost the best possible outcome for a cold case yeah it's that i could see for that time period yeah, you know they're all identified um there's no prosecution to be done the families likely have their closure you know um not the worst possible outcome yeah. you know so that leads us into the reason why this case is still cold um so a search of the vehicle like we said was run and came up with 350 possible matches super helpful right yeah not really (laughs) so um yeah not helpful at all um very difficult to get further with that if there was no more sightings of the vehicle um in addition the dna that was run was inconclusive um now, the sheriff, uh, the current sheriff during that time period, died in 2006 yeah, as well. did stall the investigation a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that had to be passed forward. And then Linda Moore, um, back to her. She was an extreme outlier. She was the one who was uh, um, murdered in her home. Yeah. Later by her husband. Um, and thankfully, the wit- witness um, did reveal the composite from that. Um, but it was a very odd situation, um, especially for this killer. Um, so 
they couldn't really figure much from that. Um, and lastly, Jane Borowski, the uh, pregnant lady. Um, her crime scene did yield some DNA evidence, but none of it has been compared to the prime suspect, which I think is another thing they could do now yeah. to I also, open this um, case. Yeah, I think that they can definitely work on some of the DNA evidence because we have so much more DNA technology and we know a lot more about DNA now. Mm -hmm. So I think we could definitely make some really good strides with that. But like we mentioned several times, like this case is from the late 1800s. Yeah. And so obviously there are things There's that been we a know lot now and we can do that. Yeah. They couldn't do that. And obviously as unfortunate as that is, it really is just a byproduct of the time period yeah. and the technology and information available to them. Mm -hmm. um, so that obviously is unfortunate, but um, thankfully we have advanced more so that hopefully if this were to ever happen again, yeah. we would be able to solve it faster and more yeah. efficiently. And I think, I definitely think that, you know, to go back and look at some of this again um, would it would be very probable that we would find something that would be of help. Um, I don't know if there's funds for that, but yeah. which is likely another reason why the case is still cold is, you know, we have a lot of current cold cases going on. We have a lot of active cases going on. Cold cases, unfortunately, take the back shelf in a lot of situations. But, you know, now we have forensic genetic genealogy. We have a ton of new programs and techniques yeah. and, you know, things that, might be willing to put in the funds and see where this goes, Absolutely. which would be really interesting to see. And one of the other really good things is that most um, of the larger police departments, um, editors usually they say, have a cold case unit. Yeah, they too. have a cold case unit. Mm -hmm. um, so that Detective Rowland, like we mentioned, um, kind he of was an officer with the cold case unit, I believe, with the New Hampshire State Police. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of state police offices have a specialized cold case unit. And their main job is to look at the cold cases that they have, see if any new leads have come up, mm -hmm. um, investigate any of those new leads, and hopefully try to solve some of these cold cases, mm -hmm. um, which I think is honestly really great. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I think they could take this further. So, um, we're going to attach our sources. Um, we have several that were very helpful um and a podcast that would be very interesting to listen to if you want to get more information about this case yeah absolutely it's definitely a really interesting very one. interesting yeah. yeah encourage anyone listening to look into it yeah yeah definitely um any last comments kind of just i actually really enjoyed this i um, did too. for our first episode of this podcast yeah um so i think that's gonna be it unless you have anything else to say i think we're all good thank you guys for chatting with coffee, coffee and cold, cold cases. cases see you next time